I hope you guys have had a good week. I've had a great week. A few days ago, the Bottle Rockets were in town. They were playing a record store here in the neighborhood. Went over there, got to hang out with them, and then later at night, they were playing a gig at the Mercy Lounge. And went over there, just a great Bottle Rockets gig, and it was good to hang out with my friends. And then uh, Billy Bragg was in town. He gave me a call. Said, hey, Otis, I want to go do some fun stuff. Uh, what are you doing? So I went and picked him up, and I got to drive him around the neighborhood. Got to show Billy East Nashville. Went to some record stores and stuff like that, and some vintage stores. Then we went over to the Musicians Hall of Fame, and my buddy Jay McDowell was nice enough to give us a little guided tour. And he was even nice enough to get out a guitar that was Johnny Cash's that he played on stage back in the 60s. And he let us play it. It was an old guild, really nice looking beat up guild. And then the next day, Amy and I went over to the Red Barn Roundup and uh, got to hang out with some friends who were in town from around the world. Got to see a lot of friends from the neighborhood. Just a great way to cap off a really good week. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Warner Hodges. Warner's a great guitar player, and you probably know him from his work in Jason and the Scorchers, Dan Baird and Homemade Sin, and the Bluefields. You can find out everything you need to know about Warner at jasonandthescorchers.com, or you can find him on his personal Facebook page. When I was a kid, I was a huge Jason and the Scorchers fan, and I still am. But I remember I got to see them at the Arlington Theater in Indianapolis, Indiana, sometime in the mid-80s, and just really left an impression on me. I remember sitting at home by my record player trying to figure out how to play some of the solos and uh, trying to figure out the solo to Still Tide. And to this day, I still don't play it nearly anywhere near what Warner does. But um, it was beautiful to get to sit down with Warner in his living room here in Nashville And just a really sweet guy, really generous, easygoing, just really easy to be around. I I really enjoyed this, and I think you guys will too. And we covered a lot of things, so I think we ought to jump right into it. Here's Warner Hodges. My dad dad was in the U.S. military. I'm an Army brat, and... uh, I was very fortunate to live in Germany a few times. Um, my dad was actually in the first cab in the infantry. And the way he always did things, whenever he come back from a war zone, he would request a German deployment because if he and the family went to Germany, we got three years in one spot instead of one year. If you got an American posting, you only got 12 months, then they could move you or send you back to a war zone. So he would always request Germany and Most of the time he got it. If we went to Germany, we got 36 months in one spot. So I was born there and went there a couple of other times as a kid. Was he involved in the USO? 
Uh, my parents actually did shows, uh, special forces, armed forces shows, some USO shows. The last time we were in Germany, I actually ended up playing drums in their country band and, uh, they were doing special services shows on the U.S. military bases uh, and British military bases at that time, uh, late 60s, early 70s. My, my parents played a bunch of shows with Johnny Cash. For years, they had, a, uh, they had the number one country band doing the special forces thing, and they were always the opening act for all the Nashville bands that come over, or they'd provide the band for acts that didn't bring a band and that kind of thing. So. Any bands that you remember the names of? Oh, they did Roy Acuff. They did uh, Archie Campbell. They did Cash. Um, some of the other stuff, Buck and Merle and those guys brought their own bands, you know, but they got to play with a lot of people. It was cool. Did you ever see any of these people as a kid? Some, some. Yeah. Any, any memories of uh, well, the, the Merle Haggard show was the one I remember. I mean, Merle Haggard was the guy. But I actually saw Merle when White Line Fever was number one at the time. And let's just say that Merle had imbibed a little bit. And he literally stopped in the middle of the song and went, I'm sorry, y'all, I don't remember the words, and moved along. <laughs> you know, And it was like, wow, this is a number one song. And dude just moved along, you know. <laughs> I was nine, ten years old, something like that. But it was, you know, it was Merle Haggard. As Dan says, his top 50 is way better than my top 50. <laughs> my parents, my, my dad managed to retire from the military with 27 years at 43 years old. My mom was only 36 at the time, and they actually moved here to pursue a, a label deal for my mother. My mother was a real good country singer in the Loretta Lynn, Tammy Wynette mode. Um, they did not know at the time that already 36 was way too old, even in those days, you know, time had passed them by, but it turned out to be a great move for me. You know, as a kid, I was 14, something like that when we moved here and it was the place to be as a player. You know, I got to see you live here now, you know, we were talking about it before we started this. The dude at 7-Eleven's better than we are, you know? He just ain't had a break yet. <laughs> what year was this? Do you remember? 73. Do you, do you remember seeing people playing around town at all? Oh, yeah. I, I saw the Opry in the old Opry house when it was the old Opry house, you know, downtown. It's uh, when Tootsie's was, like, unbelievable. And I, I was fortunate because I, I actually played in my parents' band. By that point, I was playing a little bass, a little guitar, I had always played drums and I became like whatever was missing. I was that guy. You know, if we had a, if we had a bass player and a drummer, I was the guitar player. If whatever they didn't have in the band, I, I, I was the missing slot, you know, but I got to go into a whole lot of places at a very young age. You know, I got to where with the exit in, in the old days, my dad used to take me down to see shows. He took me to so many shows I got to where they just let me in, even though I was underage. They knew my parents were okay with it, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, I got to see, I had, the first time the Ramones come to Nashville, I had ticket number two. They canceled that show. Um, they didn't sell enough tickets, you know. I had ticket number two, and I would bought it two or three days before the show. Nobody had ever heard of the Ramones at that point. But uh, I got to see the Ramones there. 
they played when the exit in, I don't know if you've ever played the exit in, but the back door of the exit in used to be the door into the club. The Everything was out back. It was the exit was on the backside of the exit in, you know? And um, the club was a third the size. And the Ramones had the full walls of marshals and the whole, I mean, it was cut it up and duck, you know? I got to see the police. They showed up in a station wagon. There was 13 of us there to see the police that night, you know? <laughs> Roxanne had just come out. Nobody had ever heard of them. Um, I saw the Romantics. Uh, they did not have a hit yet. Now, what? They only had the two, but they had two monster hits, you know? I'd see uh, Wall of Voodoo, some really cool stuff, you know, when people weren't real sure what kind of music that was in Nashville, you know? <laughs> wasn't real sure about that. Didn't sound like a Willie Nelson song at all. <laughs> 1962 Fender Jazzmaster. It's upstairs. I still have it. My parents bought my Jazzmaster and a Vox Berkeley 2 Beatle amp off of a lead guitar player that was playing with them. When I had started messing with guitar, my dad had just bought the amp and the guitar, $125, put it in the closet. And when I started beating fire out of his guitar, he went, No, here, here's yours, you know. <laughs> and I still got my Jazzmaster upstairs. The First two Jason and the Scorchers record. That guitar is literally every every track on the record. Oh, um, it's a wonderful guitar. Don't play it much anymore. Bob Dylan drove me nuts trying to buy it off me. And I was just <laughs> like, dude, my parents bought me this. It was my first guitar. I'm not gonna sell it to you, you know. Why don't you tell me the story? Well, he Bob Bob was a when we did the dates with him. We were we were kind of told you don't talk to Bob unless he speaks to you. You know, Bob's not the most talkative guy. And uh, so, you know, I just went, all right, well, that's cool. You know, I don't really need to speak to Bob. I don't see there's going to be any any place where Bob and I are going to, you know, end up having a big conversation. But he had come back to our dressing room third or fourth night. We weren't playing Sweet Marie. And he wanted to know why we weren't playing Sweet Marie. Goes, why aren't you boys playing Sweet Marie? You know, it's like, well, it's kind of your song. We didn't know if we, you know, he, well, we, I like your version. I like your version better than mine. You should be playing it. So, so we ended up playing Sweet Marie. And one night I, I step over my guitar tech and my little guitar world, and he's in guitar world with my guitar tech. And he's messing with my jazz master. And I, I've got a weird setup on my Jazzmaster. I got like a 71 Firebird pickup in the lead position that Seymour Duncan hand wound and gave me years ago, rewound. And I've got a Tele Rhythm pickup on it. It's not set up like a Jazzmaster. And uh, he just dug the guitar and decided that he wanted to buy said guitar. And he messed with me a few different times over it before. It was like, I'm not selling you the damn guitar. You know, it was like, it's my first guitar. I've, that guitar has actually been yanked out of a couple trucks where people have tried to steal it from me. And I eventually got to where I just quit carrying it on the road because it, it's got a special place in my heart. You know? I'm going to assume that Dylan asked you guys onto the tour himself. I, I don't know how we got that tour. I know we we canceled the rest of a European tour and come back to the States to open up for Bob Dylan. We were in Europe doing dates and probably had something to do with the record company and a bunch of different stuff. Uh, we were still doing pretty good business at that time. 
Um, Sweet Marie had been really good for us, still is all these years later. It's one of our calling cards. And I don't, I don't know if Bob was a fan of the band or anything, but you know, we were treated pretty well. And like I say, we, we literally canceled the rest of the European dates and come back, flew back to America and all of a sudden was opening for Dylan for 20, 25 shows, something like that. Probably pretty large crowds also, wasn't it? They were decent theater crowds, four or 5,000 people. It was a weird thing, man, because you got to see the Dylan thing. I mean, his audience was 12-year-olds to 80, you know? I mean, it was really a family thing. People that were, when he had started, they were in their late 40s or whatever. It, you know, it was just his audience was just crazy very. Jason had moved to town. He threw together a little band, which uh, an old buddy of Jeff Johnson's and mine named Barry Feltz played drums. And there was an, a, a different version of Jason in the Nashville Scorchers. Barry Feltz was on drums. Uh, Jack Emerson, who became Jason and the Scorchers manager, was on bass. And a law student named Will, and I, I am sorry, Will, I do not know your last name, but a, a guy that went to Vanderbilt Law School was playing guitar, and then Jason was actually the lead guitar player and the front man. They did two shows. One of them was opening up for this little band out of Athens, Georgia called R.E.M. The other one was opening up for Carl Perkins. Jeff had seen the R.E.M. show, and he told me about it and said, man, you got to go see this guy. You're going to love this. And I went to the Carl Perkins show and Jason spent three quarters of the night out in the crowd with the long guitar cord and the mic and all that, you know, it was just like, wasn't on stage half the time, you know, it's just like, well, I got to play with this guy, you know, he's nuts. I hadn't seen anything like that in Nashville, you know, he was just crazy nuts. And, uh, Jeff had tried to get the job playing guitar with him. I guess the Vandy law student couldn't do it and go to law school. And Jeff had auditioned to to play guitar, but Jeff didn't really know all the country so stuff. Uh, knew uh, some rockabilly and all the rock stuff. Jeff was Mr. Rolling Stones. But he didn't really have a lot of the country stuff in, in his bag of tricks. He ended up playing bass. And I come in and auditioned and got the guitar slot. I knew all the country stuff inside out from playing with my parents. And after a month or two, Barry, the drummer, quit, and I brought in Perry. I had played with Perry from high school, and that became Jason and the Scorchers that everybody in the 80s knew. Um, played on all the records. Did you get to meet Carl Perkins that night? I didn't get to meet Carl Perkins that night, no. I was a nobody, just a fan, you know. I just come out to see, actually come out to see Jason. Loved seeing Carl. You know, I got to see an, a rock and roll icon, you know, but uh, I didn't get anywhere close enough to Carl to meet him. I did later on that year. I got to meet Jerry Lee, which was big doings, you know, big doings. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, my God, the killer, you know. I never got to meet Cash, never got to meet Elvis, but I did get to meet Last Man Standing. And so. <laughs> uh, I lucked up. Actually, it's kind of funny because Dan Baird's wife, Lori George, who used to work for our management company, Praxis International, uh, Jack Emerson's little company. Lori was our one of the first people on board. 
Lori and Lori was at that show too. Jerry Lee paid off a gambling debt over here in West Nashville. There used to be a club called Pee Wee's. And Jerry Lee, basically, I don't know the whole story behind it. I know he played under a streetlight in a parking lot. And he was Jerry Lee Lewis, <laughs> you know. And it uh, he was supposedly paying off gambling debt. But it was unbelievable. And the band was Kenny Loveless and James Burton on guitars. You know, it was just like, my God, you know, James Burton, you know. It, uh, it, it was a spectacular evening. And it was just Jerry Lee on a flatbed truck underneath the streetlight in a parking lot with 1,500 punk rock kids going, yeah, this is cool, you know? <laughs> it was, you know? And I somehow finagled meeting Jerry Lee that night, and actually, it was one of those things. He had the young girl on the arm, the beer in his hand, and he's like, just stay away from women and alcohol, son. You'll do fine. <laughs> and that poor girl come up dead a few days later, you know? Oh. So it's uh, the killer. I don't know. The greatest rock and roll show I ever saw was Jerry Lee Lewis. Dude. And uh, Kenny and James Burton was with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I got to yeah. stand, you know, 10 feet from him. Oh, yeah. Dude, that is eight up with talent. You know, just Dan tells this great thing of seeing Jerry Lee two different nights at the bottom line. One night he was sober and incredible. One night he was so drunk and it was he don't know which night was better, you know? <laughs> One night he was so drunk and so profane. The other night was just like straight musicianship and singing, but Dan wasn't sure which one was the better night, you know? <laughs> Amazing talent. Amazing talent. My childhood memories, my fondest ones, are my dad on Friday and Saturday nights getting drunk and singing along to Jerry Lee Lewis records. Really? He absolutely loved him. So, I mean, yeah. it's kind of the soundtrack of my childhood. Yeah, sure, sure. And there's a point in your life when you get old enough to realize your dad has better taste than you do in music. <laughs> <laughs> so the Jerry Lee stories, I eat them up. Have you ever seen that last man standing thing? Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm sorry. I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to. The deal when he's singing with Kid Rock, right? And Jerry Lee's an old man now. But you can still see in the eyes, it's like, I could chew you up and spit you out <laughs> if I wanted to. And I'm 80, you know? Yeah. There's that point of like, Dude, you do not know. You are messing with nitroglycerin. <laughs> you know. Amazing talent. Amazing talent. Jeff Johnson, our old bass player, the only time he wanted to drive was if he'd been drinking. That was the only time he was really up for driving, you know, which, of course, we wouldn't let him, you know. But uh, Jason and I did a lot of driving way back here. And... Uh, one day we were going to Nebraska somewhere. We drove like all night, you know, one of them, them all-nighters because you got a $212 gig tomorrow, you know. <laughs> and uh, I had drove, Jason had drove till he couldn't stand up. I had drove till I couldn't stand up. And I look in the rearview mirror and Jeff's awake, you know. And I'm like, Jeff, you know, uh, is there any way maybe I could talk you into driving for a little while, let me get a nap? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem, you know. Should have known at that point, oh, yeah, sure. So Jeff gets up front, I get in the back, I'm gone. He takes off, you know. I wake up hour and a half, two hours later. We're off the side of the road. Jeff's leaned up on the side of the door, dead asleep. You know, we ain't moving, you know. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's pretty pretty messed up. He pulled over, he quit driving, but that's better than wrecking the van, you know. And he drove us drove a couple hours. So 
we trade. I get back up front. I start down the road, and I realize he went like three miles up the road. Soon as <laughs> soon as I fell asleep, he just pulled off and went back to sleep. You know, <laughs> he went three miles up the road. Um, hey, that that was that's classic Jeff Johnson. Um, in those days. Um, one night we did the thing where we had stopped, and Perry. And Jason, one of them thought one of them had paid for gas. The other one thought the other one had paid for gas. Long story short, short, we got a tank of gas and left without paying for it in Illinois. And we're heading up the highway. And all of a sudden, 10 cops, you know, we're, we're pulled over. We have stole Fort Knox or something. And all of us have no idea what we're getting pulled over for. I mean, nobody has a clue why, not an inclination, you know? Thank God, I guess. And the cops were like, you didn't pay for the gas, you know? And Jason looks at Perry, he's like, I thought you, and I thought you, and they literally realized we were that stupid. (laughs) And they just (laughs) let us go back and pay for the gas, you know? It's like, thank, thank God, you know, we had not stole the gas, we were just really stupid and didn't pay for it you know (laughs) we did uh we did maybe six months with stevie ray we did about a year with the t-birds when they had their big record um stevie was wonderful um he was it was at a time where he was able to do three three and a half thousand four thousand people a night and the scorchers were still able to do thousand fifteen hundred people but the two bands, it was one of those bills that kind of worked, and we were able to play 5,000 seaters, you know? And it, um, his fans tolerated us. Our fans really dug him, you know? The Scorchers were always a hard band to put on with people because, you know, I mean, we, we did a tour one time opening up for Survivor, and that just, like, made no damn sense whatsoever, you know, us playing with Survivor. But it was the Pacific Northwest, and we'd never been able to get up there. And Jason, Jason did some amazing things that people would start booing us. And Jason would stop the song, jump down in the audience, have Mr. Spotlight Man, follow me. And he'd go down. Well, so what do you dislike about our band so much? And throw a mic in front of the people's face. You know, and it actually would turn the crowd into our favor. You know, the crowd would end up being like, okay, okay with these wild country punk guys, you know. But we did we did dates with Stevie. Stevie was wonderful. It was kind of at the end before he'd quit drinking, you know. And um, he, he was wonderful. He checked on us every day, made sure we were getting what we were supposed to get, made sure we got an hour sound check, even if it shortened his, you know. He was a good dude. He was an amazing guitar player. He was kind and personable. Yeah, you know, he was he was that, you know, his own worst enemy drunk, but he got that together. You know, it's really a horribly sad story that he died the way he did because God knows what, you know, we got to see some of what was coming, you know. I looked up and saw two of the shows when him and Beck did the tour where they were flip-flopping, you know. My God, you know. It's Stevie... His voice was seven million times better after he quit drinking and having a good time. His playing was always spectacular, but his voice was just so much better. And the show had 
tightened up and it wasn't this long guitar jam you know it became you know he'd do two passes rip the roof out of the place and get on to the next song you know and uh jeff beck's jeff beck you know (laughs) but it made beck play well because there was somebody else in the house that could you know and beck always seems to be better when when there's there's that kind of guy around he makes sure everybody knows he's jeff beck I met Danny. They were managed by the same people that managed Jason and the Scorpions, Jack Emerson and his partner, Andy McLennan, at the time. Jason is actually the guy that took them the cassette with hands. Um, and But I met Dan and Rick Richards, I want to say, at the old one of the myriad of 40 watt clubs in Athens, Georgia. They came down to see a show. I don't even know if they had a drummer and a bass player at the time. There was seven or eight drummers in that band before they got Mauro Magellan. And the bass players, hell, the original band was called Keith and the Satellites. It was Keith Christopher's band, you know. But the bass player slot, I guess there was seven, eight, nine bass players before the band that we knew as the Georgia Satellites. But I met Rick and Dan at a Scorcher show, I want to say 84, maybe. We came to a 40-watt show. And uh, they were... Our drum tech at the time, Kevin Jennings, was their guy. He's who got the EP put together. He's an Atlanta guy, British guy, but he lives in Atlanta. Uh, Kevin's also uh, the guy that brought us this other band named the Black Crows. I mean, he actually found two great rock and roll bands, you know. But um, Kevin was actually drum teching for us while he was trying to get somebody to put out this EP by this little band called the Georgia Satellites. And uh, he managed to get the EP out. And then Jack and Andy got him a real record deal, you know. And they did the first record. And we went out on our third record. They were opening act on that tour. And in 90 days, we watched the space shuttle kind of take off, (laughs) you know. Uh, Hands to yourself, needless to say, went through the roof, you know. And uh, I've known Dan and Mo since then, and the other guys in the sets too. But and um, I just lucked up. I uh, I was doing a solo record six, seven years ago. I had been playing some with Stacy Collins, and Dan had produced her records and brought me in and out and in and out. And I was doing a solo record, and Dan was helping me with it. And he come in one day and just plopped down a bunch of CDs and went, I got 12 shows and don't have a guitar player. Learn this shit. Which was like, all right, cool. You know? And we supposedly were going to do that tour and he was calling it a day. You know, I've, I've since learned Dan's always calling it a day, you know? But, um, I was like, can't we do the shows and see if we're calling it a day? And we ended up having a great time and one thing led to another and here we are. You know, I've known Dan since 84. That was a long story to say I've known Dan since 1984. Do you have any Todd Snyder stories? I know you played some gigs with Todd. I've done one. I mean, Todd opened up a bunch of gigs for the Scorchers years ago, and I've actually done one show where I played with Todd. At Louisville? Yeah, yeah, Louisville. And I mean, I had to learn. It was it was great. I just I ran into Todd at a long player show. And Todd, Todd said to me, he's like, 
I wish you'd play with me every now and then. And I said, well, dude, I, I'll, I'd gladly play, play with you. And he literally, one of his road guys went home, got me CDs, and I played with him the next day. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> had to go home and learn like 25 songs, played with him the next day. And it, yeah, it was fun. It was it was a mess, but I think Todd likes a mess. It's uh, I didn't have time to prepare, and uh, I think Todd liked the fact there was somebody on stage that knew even less where it was going to go. You know, <laughs> I enjoyed it. It was a load of fun, but it was really like I think I even went. Dan played bass on it, and we literally just drove up and Dan's vehicle played the show and came back. Or, you know, it was like, but it was fun. I, Todd, Todd's a talented guy. That was a festival in Louisville, and I was yeah. actually on right before you guys. Really? And uh, I remember it rained like hell. Yeah. Wasn't a big crowd, but uh, I remember standing out there and enjoying it. Well, I, dude, I was holding on with both hands, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I did that with. I did the same thing with Trent Summer uh, a few years ago. I had learned twenty six songs in one night. Drove down to Dallas, no, drove down to Arkansas, played, and I'll be damned if Trent didn't ask me to learn nine more on the way to Dallas, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> that was okay. That fun. Did you play on an Iggy Pop record, or did you play with I, him? I, 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 this is one of the straws that broke the camel's back. I had gotten a gig playing with Iggy, and basically got fired over alcohol. Um, one of the last straws that broke the camel's back managed to sober up about a year later. Um, big Iggy pop fan. Wish I, wish I wouldn't have done that. Love to play with you now. Ig, give me a call. Um, was he a fan? And, uh, I think so. I think he was a scorcher fan. He actually, the first time he called me, he called me the day we started the Thunder and Fire record. We'd spent a year writing songs and putting the band back together after Jeff had left the first time. And the day we were heading to the studio, I get a call. I'm at a friend's house. He tracked me down at a friend's house. And the guy goes, here, Iggy Pop on the phone. And I'm like, yeah, right. And hello, this is Warner. Warner, this is Iggy Pop. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> but I, it was like, I couldn't do it at that point. I was like, we, we worked all year to get, you know, and he understood that, but needless to say, I, I showed my tail and it, it cost me, but it was also one of the things that helped sober me up. So sounds like a positive in the end, in the end. Yeah. But it sure would have been nice to have done 50 weeks with Iggy pop. You know, yeah. I'm an egg fan. He's a, he's one of the real guys. Well, you know what I think. About, I think back on the days uh, there was, um, like when the Scorchers first started, there was a little frat band called the White Animals. Like a little frat band, they were doing three quarters of a million million dollars of business playing frats a year. They had a little organization and had it going on. You know, wasn't what I wanted to do, but they were great guys, and they still play a little bit. You know, they were very helpful and very encouraging to Jason and the Scorchers. Wasn't what we did, but we we did a lot of shows with them where, you know, we'd go play a town where they did great business. We'd open for them. We'd do the same thing in reverse, you know. We'd go to a town where we did business, let them play with us, you know. Although they did business most places. They really had it going on. 
there was a band of older guys in town called the Piggies, which was kind of a new wave thing. Really wasn't my cup of tea, but all four guys were wonderful, established guys that could play their instruments, you know. We were all learning how to play ours. They could play theirs. Uh, kind of neat story. The rhythm guitar player singer in that band what wrote the Budweiser Frog commercial and was one of the Frog voices and went from being a broke musician to he's got a real advertising gig now, you know, which is great. Good guy went one, you know. Um, but, that, you know, they were all very supportive. And I know we weren't their cup of tea, you know, but they helped us out and put us on gigs when we had no business being on the gigs and the REM guys, you know, the REM guys, we played 200 shows with REM the first couple, three years we were together. Uh, they, they didn't need us. Obviously, you know, they were just good dudes. And we'd go down to, we'd go down to Atlanta to open up for them at six, eight, eight. And we were going to get paid a hundred dollars for opening for them. And they'd give us two hotel rooms and $400 of their money, you know, which was like pretty nice. You know, they were those that, and I know all kinds of bands from that era that will say that about the REM guys. I was never a huge REM fan of musically, but they were all four great guys. You know, they were just good dudes. For years, I stayed at Bill Berry's house in Athens. Every time we played Athens, I just stayed at his house, you know. Dude, we would play shows with them and it'd be like, yeah, let's see you follow that, you know? And they'd go out and just rip the joint apart. And it's like, well, they just followed that, you know? <laughs> um, they, um, they, they were just great. You know, they were good guys. They were the first guys we'd really, well, not the first guys, but the first touring act we came along with. You know how it is out there, man. Most of the bands out there, they're busy trying to get theirs. They really ain't interested in yours. You know, the REM guys tried to make sure everybody else was taken care of fairly well, too. And it was something that we watched. Stevie was real big about it. He had been the doormat himself at a time, you know, the opening act. A lot of times it's just like the doormat, you know, and uh, the survivor gigs we did. They, those were horrible. You know, it was like, why are we out here? You know, uh, the T-Birds made sense. You know, they were OK. You know, Stevie. They'd all paid their dues. They'd all been there, done. Hell, they're still out there doing it. Stevie's not, but, you know, Jimmy's out there. Kim's out there doing his thing. The, you know, I respect the REM guys. You know, when they got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they, uh, Michael Stipe introduced like 92 people. You know, that that's big down to people from the 40 Watt Club and stuff. I mean, he, you know, he, he remembered all the folks and, and took the time and introduced them and, you know, that night, you know, should have been Van Halen's night and Van Halen looked like the biggest joke on the face of the planet. You know, I actually felt sorry for Sammy Hagar, not a fan, but it should have been his night. You know, he's getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they all look like idiots, you know, and the R.E.M. guys looked so classy and so, you know, they, they did it right. They brought Bill back for the induction and, you know, Bill had left the band of his own accord years before it's just everything was done right. And then they went, you know what? We're retiring. We're going to call it a day. And they did. Just went to the house. You know, I don't know what they're doing, but that's okay. Pretty impressive. Your parents had to have been really proud to be able to see you tour and make a living 
and play a lot of times with the people that they idolized. Yeah, uh, my my folks, I was very fortunate. I never went through the get a job, be somebody. I mean, my parents were musicians, you know. I always had an added dimension to my relationship with my folks and that I'd played in their band. And uh, I could come off a bad road trip and they'd had them. I could come off a good road trip and they'd had them. And uh, they understood. I, I could talk to them about things that... Yeah, I, I, you know, I remember Jeff's parents. They just always wanted him to get a job at the post office. They, when was this music thing going to be over so you get a real job? You know, and it's um, I, I just, I never had that dynamic. You know, when my father passed away, I lost my biggest fan on the planet. You know, my dad, my dad thoroughly was convinced I was the greatest guitar player of all time. You and I both know that's absolute crap. But my dad thought I was, and that was big doings to me, you know? That's everything. It, yeah, yeah. It was it was big doings to me. Uh, my mother's always been supportive of everything I've done musically. And it's hard. You know how this shit is. You know, it's it can be very hard. We played somewhere, uh, Harris House, Switzerland, a couple of years ago. Yeah, with Dan, yeah. yeah Dan, and, I, and you guys were just great to me, man. You treated me... Just beautiful. Well, you're good and, folks, man. You had good tunes. Well, you put up with me, and I appreciate I, I, that. No. Not put up. We actually, <laughs> that was one of the nights where we did end up there while you were playing, you know, and it was like, well, this is nice. He's doing good, you know, and you did. You could hear the crowd really enjoyed it. And I, still, I still don't know where we were. No. I, <laughs> that was a weird ass place. And we've played there since. <laughs> It's really kind of cool, though. The guy that owns the club, his dad cooks dinner for you, you know, which is all those Swiss gigs are always kind of like, all right, what's going to happen today? You know, <laughs> that's, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I love Switzerland. I appreciate you uh, inviting me into your living room. No, dude. Thank you for coming. Thank you for asking me, especially now I've heard this list of superlatives that have done this thing. <laughs> Thank you for uh, chatting with me. Thank you, Otis. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Warner for inviting me into his living room here in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Warner at jasonandthescorchers.com or by visiting his personal Facebook page. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.